0: Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on business development. Now here's your host, Nicole Giantonio. Hello, listeners, and welcome to today's episode of Left Foot. Our guest today is Danny Ertel, one of the founders of Vantage Partners. Hello, Danny, and welcome.
1: Hi, Nicole. Great to be here.
0: Danny's practice helps buyers and providers of service enter into, manage, and when necessary, mediate their relationships. Danny has practiced law, has co-authored three books, and is written for and been quoted in the Harvard Business Review, Sloan Management Review, and The Economist. Danny, I've given our listeners a brief introduction. Please expand on the work you do at Vantage Partners and give us some insight into your background.
1: Sure. Um, Nicole, Advantage. we help... Uh and we focus on helping our clients be more successful in how they manage their most important external relationships, so be it with customers, suppliers, with business partners, and then also manage those changes internally for with process, with metrics, with skills, with behaviors so that they can do those things well. Um, but it's hardly what I expected to be doing when I started out as a, long, as a young lawyer nearly 30 years ago. Um, I went to law school. I thought I was going to be a lawyer or a legal academic. I did all those things you're supposed to do. Um, And then I decided that wasn't as much fun um, as helping people to solve problems. These days, I travel way too much for work and not enough for fun. I do manage to to have my wife join me sometimes at the more interesting destinations and, uh, and combine the two.
0: Fantastic. Vantage Partners is involved in teaching others how to negotiate and also, you know, negotiating while establishing strong client relationships and strong advisor relationships. Danny, what qualities do you have that make you good at negotiating and keeping those relationships with clients and advisors solid?
1: Well, You know, I may be fooling myself, but I like to I like to think I listen, Um, listen for what's being said and also for what's not being said Um, and try to tease out what's really important to the person sitting across the table from me or on the phone, Um, whether they're a client or they're a negotiation counterpart, really identify what we're solving for. Until we know what we're solving for, it's really hard to get creative. It's really hard to get persuasive. It's really hard to influence.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. So, I mean, it's, so really, is there a tool or something that you use a best practice that allows you to really get to the real heart of the matter with a client or prospect or an advisor?
1: I mean, I think I I keep digging, there's the old, you know, five whys um, as kind of a metaphor, but I I keep trying to, to get to so what really are the client's needs, their objectives, their fears, their desires? What are they trying to accomplish or avoid? Um, and when I understand that, then the, then the problem, then the discussion really becomes one about sort of putting our heads together and say, how do we solve for that? If I try to convince someone that they shouldn't be solving for a problem, that's kind of a fool's errand.
0: Interesting. You know, there's so much, I'm I'm quite interested to hear any, you know, stories and we'll talk about that in a minute about, you know, heated conversations, heated negotiations, but, you know, is there a particular tactic that people use in the market that you find frustrating either when you're working with a client and advising them on a negotiation or one that you've experienced yourself that you find particularly uh, not positive or not helpful?
1: Yeah, you know, there's lots of games that people play and they, they put up false fronts and they they faint and they dodge and they do things to throw you off your game. Uh, sometimes they don't even realize they're doing it. They just do something because it's worked for them before. Um, what's personally most frustrating to me is when I think the negotiator either is or acts as if they're just a messenger. They don't know. They won't engage in what we're really solving for. They just have a demand that that I somehow have to meet. Um, and I think when that happens, you just have to, you, you have to stay a little bit focused on your game plan and just ask lots of questions, suggest lots of possibilities that really require a decision maker to make some choices among them. And the negotiator then has to either step up and take on that broader mantle or bring someone who who can do those things into the conversation.
0: So to make sure I'm understanding that, are you suggesting that we should aim to negotiate with the decision maker because very often they keep the decision maker out, right? The final person, they come in at the last minute so that negotiations go handled without that person having to make a decision at the table. Is that, did I hear that correctly?
1: It's not so much about hierarchy and the ultimate authority. Uh, I'm happy to negotiate with someone who has enough of a mandate to make a recommendation to a decision maker, um, to really engage with me in figuring out what makes sense to recommend and then to actually recommend and endorse that and stand behind that recommendation, whether they actually have the the budget authority or the power to sign on the dotted line um, is a different question. Um, I just find frustrating to, to try to influence or negotiate or problem solve with someone who can't engage, um, who has no ability to make real choices uh, among the options on the table.
0: Mm -hmm. Understood. Great clarification. And and I agree with you, you know, having that person that can support the recommendation because quite often what I call the approver, um is not involved in the negotiation but is is really looking for that recommendation of of the person who is involved. So can you summarize? I mean I'm sure Vantage Partners you have a number of employees and people that you have out in the field as educating others on negotiations and and client relationships. Can you summarize your firm's recommendation? specific to fee and scope negotiation discussions? I mean, is there a particular approach that you support?
1: Sure. Um, as you know, Nicole, some of what we do is is advisory work, and some of it is is skill and capability building. And and regardless of the mode that we're in, if you think about a fee and scope negotiation, I guess I come at it from you know what are we solving for in that kind of a negotiation, and I think the biggest sin, the biggest problem, the biggest mistake that we're solving for when we're working with clients on that particular type of negotiation, um, is that most Professional service negotiators, when they're negotiating with a client about their fees and about their their scope, tend to set themselves up for a little bit of a haggle, right? They say, here's my hourly rate, or here is my fixed fee, or here's my proposed cap, or whatever it is. But they start kind of high, leave themselves a little bit of room for concessions. The client, of course, pushes back and says, oh, that's too much, And then they make the first of a series of concessions. And I think when you do that, um, you're teaching your client not to trust the first thing you say. You're teaching your client that even though you're trying to represent yourself as a trusted advisor, you're playing games when it comes to your fee. And when you come out of that negotiation, you've given away some value, you've made concessions, and the worst part of it is, is that your client doesn't even know if they got a good deal because they don't know how much further you would have gone. Um, so, so that's just a disaster from, from a margin perspective, but from a relationship perspective. And I think that it's, it's funny because if you were to ask that same professional who just engaged in that silly concession haggle with a client over fees, how they negotiate a deal on behalf of the client, they wouldn't have done that. They would have said, we've really got to understand what the other side needs, and we got to understand some leverage points, and we got to get creative, and we got to figure out who's got to be persuaded and be on board. And they roll up their sleeves, and they get to work. But when it comes to negotiating their own fees and scope, they forget everything they know about effective negotiation. So my first piece of advice is flip that switch in your brain that says this is a professional negotiation and prepare for it the way you would prepare for any negotiation on behalf of your client. And that means you got to spend time on the scope and of the objectives of the client. you got to really listen for what the client is trying to solve for, not just in terms of the underlying substantive problem, but also for how you're going to approach it and what it's going to cost. Those are also interests that the client has you got to try out some different approaches, right? There isn't just one way to skin a cat. There isn't just one way to do this. So you have to engage the client a little bit in some problem solving and some trade-offs and you got to help them understand kind of where the numbers are coming from. And I think here it's really important to, to lead with the rationale, not with the number. When you lead with a number, the automatic response of the other side is to ask for a little bit less. If you lead with the rationale, right, this is the kind of staffing model I'm putting together. This is the duration. These are the skills we need. This is what's at stake. Then they can talk to you about the merits of the problem.
0: Very good. It's interesting. I have two questions. Can we get away from this high price first and then negotiate down? And then the second one being is the objective to get the client to yes first and then obviously negotiate terms.
1: So let me start with the second question first. Uh, we have to get away from that because otherwise it feels like going to buy a used car and nobody enjoys that experience. Um, not, the, not the seller, or not, unless you enjoy it just for sport. But chances are you also never want to deal with them again after you're done with a bit of sport. And if the fee negotiation is part of a trusted advisor relationship, whether you're a lawyer or an accountant or an actuary or a consultant or any kind of professional, then the way you negotiate about your fees has to be consistent with that relationship and with the services that you provide. Now, it's not about getting them to, you know, quote, buy or fall in love or get to yes on the work and then trying to hit them with the fees. Um, I think that the client has to buy both and they have to see that they're, 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 there's value for money in what it is that they are agreeing with you. I think the fundamental piece of this is to help the client understand that there is a relationship between the scope of what they're asking you to do and what that's going to cost. Um, one of the problems that many, many professionals are having is that they are either being asked to move from time and materials to fixed fees or they're being asked to give estimates that turn into uh, unmovable ceilings or caps or budgets um, or they're being asked to set caps and then come what may, the client doesn't want to go above that cap. And I think it is critical for professionals to work with clients to understand that the fee is not pulled out of thin air it is related to the scope of the assignment. And if the scope changes, then we have to talk about the fee again. And if you if you don't establish that upfront, and if you don't behave that way throughout the engagement, then I would bet dollars to donuts you end up with a write-off at the end.
0: Interesting. So if the scope changes significantly, or maybe just changes, right? The fee is subject to change.
1: I think that that is an important message to convey in the negotiation. It's important for the client to understand why that's appropriate. Um, and it is important for the, the professional lawyer, accountant, actuary, whatnot, to behave that way during the course of the of the project so that you make some assumptions up front And we all know that projects change and move if it's litigation, if it's a transaction, whatever it is, things happen. And you and the client need to be sort of attached at the hip and say, so something happened, what should we do about it? Should we... Go find more money in the budget. Should we take some things out of the scope? Should we shift some activities from consultant back in-house so that they can get done without having to dip into the budget? Should we change the staffing? Should we change the timeline? How do we want to deal with this? But let's make that choice together. It shouldn't just be more stuff happened, I did a whole bunch of extra work, and then at the end I come hat in hand and say, would you please pay me more than you thought this was going to cost? And would you please take on the incredible hassle and potential risks to your career of explaining to others why you didn't manage this project to its budget?
0: You stated that it's changed and that there's this desire at this point to have more value-based pricing, which is one of the names you hear where... It is fixed fee or it's it's not based on, you know, time and materials or hours worked. Let's say it's use that term for professional services. Do you think that that this change is a result of changing market conditions? You know, Danny, I interview a lot of lawyers and others and consultants, et cetera, and the more seasoned lawyers feel that You know, charging an hourly fee worked just fine for many years. So I'd love to get your thoughts on the change and and why we're seeing this change.
1: Everybody is under more pressure these days. And you got to look at it from the client's perspective whether your client is the general counsel of a corporation, whether your client is the CFO, whoever your client is, they are under pressure to deal with a world that has gotten smaller. Everybody's business is more global, a world that has gotten more complex. Everybody's business is more regulated and has different competitors and different things to worry about and social and everything else. And they're not being given any bigger budgets. So the client is under pressure to do more with less. Um, And one of the ways in which they are trying to to deal with this is by asking their outside advisors to help them both reduce the total costs and also manage better how they spend their money. And one of the most common ways that those pressures are getting translated into fee arrangements is some variation on a fixed fee um, or a cap. Um, or even if it's just an estimate that turns into a fixed fee. And the hourly rate business, time and materials, worked just fine for lawyers for the last 25, 30 years. It wasn't always the model, but it's been the model for a generation or two. Um, And the problem is that it puts all the risk on the client. Um, And clients are just not willing to take on that risk anymore. Um, They want their advisors to be somewhat responsible for what path do they take through the woods to get to our destination, and is that a more efficient path or a less efficient path? The flip side of that is that caps and ceilings and fixed fees can potentially put all the risk on the provider and make us essentially provide scope insurance For free to our clients. Um, And that's not going to be sustainable either. Um, So I think lawyers, uh, actuaries, consultants um, have to work with their clients to say, we are going to manage scope and budget together, to be clear up front as to what the assumptions are and to have a process in place throughout the engagement to revisit those and make choices together.
0: You know I want to move on to some success stories but before we do have you seen a tool or uh, have you recommended a tool that clients and advisors can use to help manage that process that you know allows just really summarizes how they should go about defining scope and and really how often they should revisit etc
1: uh, so uh, a couple thoughts on that, Nicole. Uh, first is I, li- I like visuals and I know we're on a podcast, but let me, let me paint a picture. Um, you know, imagine that you had a graph showing how much time we as professionals spend talking with our clients about fees and scope over the life of the engagement. Okay, So we would find that it's very high at the beginning when we're selling and negotiating our fees and then it drops to almost nothing. And then it shoots back up again when we're trying to submit our invoice and collect our fees. Big U shape, big wide U. Now on the same chart, graph how much leverage we have in those negotiations. And our leverage is lowest at the beginning when we're still trying to win the assignment. It goes up when the client is relying on us to get the work done. And then it comes crashing down when we deliver the work and put our hands out and say, by the way, we need to get paid more than we agreed. And I think that we have, to take, we have to take a lesson from that chart, which is we have to keep the client in it with us and being co-responsible for making trade-offs. We learned something. Okay, what does that mean? What do we do? What do we take out to make room? Or should we keep going full barrels ahead and don't worry about the budget? That's not a choice the outside advisor should make on their own. That's a choice that the client has to be a part of, is entitled to be a part of. When you come to the client at the end of the engagement and say, by the way, I blew the budget, I didn't tell you, and I just ran up a lot of charges, you put them in a very difficult position. That's not good for the relationship. Um, That's not being a good outside trusted advisor.
0: Well, you also put yourself at risk because you might have to do a write-off as well. so there's risk all around at that point.
1: Absolutely. A- at that point, um, what I can guarantee you is that your profitability and your relationship are both going to get dinged. How much of each will depend on the circumstances, but they are both going to be worse off for it. So my my most important piece of advice to professionals is don't let... The initial negotiation be the last time you talk about fees and scope until the end of the matter. Have regular progress check ins with your client, whether you are on budget or behind budget or ahead of budget, and just make them aware of the things that you're doing, the choices that you face, what you've learned, and have them be part of a decision that says, okay, we thought we were going to take 10 depositions, we've actually had to take 20. What does that mean? Do we need to shift a little bit of the drafting back to in-house lawyers? Do we need to change the staffing going forward? Do we need to have less partner time on some of these activities? Um, Or do we need to expand the budget? Those are all fair answers, and the client has to be a part of making those choices.
0: Good information to convey. And Boy, I could ask a lot of questions about models because we have we have seen in some firms this collaborative model where they have pricing experts and project managers and and business professionals MBAs that are added to the legal team to help manage. Um, you know, what is going on at the client site. But if, if you would, Danny, it'd be great to hear a success story where what you just described is, has worked well, or just a, a success story of a, uh, either a negotiation or client um, advocate, advocate role has worked well for one of your clients.
1: Sure. Um, and I, I think that, you know, when, when you're at that, that negotiation at the end of the matter and you've blown scope, and you're asking for money, uh, there are no success stories. Because because even if you get paid, um, it's not a success story. Um, so my, my favorite success stories are based on situations where um, – Outside professional, in this case, uh, I'll talk about one. It was a law firm and the law department that they were doing a lot of work with at a a life sciences company, um, got together and said, you know, we've been working together for a while. um, And we have a lot of experience now dealing with product liability litigation. And you, the law department, are under tremendous pressure to improve the predictability of your litigation spend. And everybody always says, oh, my God, litigation spend, it's not predictable. Well, it may not be super predictable case by case, but it becomes more predictable when you look across the portfolio. So they looked at seven or eight years' worth of data, and they identified some patterns. And it led to a couple things. One of them is it led to a really simple tool to identify cases to track them for early resolution, which saves everybody money. And it also led to an understanding that you could take these cases and you could sort them into three buckets. And if it met, you know, criteria X, then the price in bucket one was Y. And it was within a pretty narrow band, Then it was pretty predictable. And if it met criteria Y, then the price in that bucket was price Z. Um, And if it didn't fit either of those, then it was a one-off. And they had enough historical data to be able to predict how many cases fell into each bucket, create a portfolio price that both the client and the law firm could live with with some bumper guard for unusual events. And it enabled the law firm to do much better job of planning staffing on this client. And it enabled the law department to go back to their individual internal clients and counsel the business units about the patterns of cases and how they related to product life cycle and what they should budget for. And it went from, you know, arm wrestling about each matter to solving a problem together for both the law firm and the law department.
0: So do you find that law firms create an environment like what you just described and then operate in it, but not based on historical past year's billings?
1: So when law firms try to do this unilaterally, Um, they find it hard to do because one of the first things they teach every lawyer in law school is how to distinguish a case. And the data that the law firms have, because of the way time slips are recorded and matters are categorized, is by and large not good enough to be able to answer every objection of every partner who's being told how much his matter should be priced at and every client that he's going to have this as a one-off conversation Um, about why their case fits this particular category, and it's not distinguishable from it. Um, I think where this works best is with a law firm and a client sit down side by side and say, client, you need predictability, you need some overall savings, you need some efficiency, Law firm, we need some predictability of revenue. We need some clarity about staffing models. We need to know if we invest in technology, the client will actually use it. Let's roll up our sleeves and come up with a model that works much better. Excellent.
0: I like the fact that that's an internal, sorry, an externally focused process, not an internal one. Because I think there tends to be, let's solve the problem inside the firm or inside the consulting practice versus really engaging the client, which is what your recommendation has been all along, which is fantastic. So, so Danny, any story you can share or um, experience you can share with a client, obviously not named, where there was a situation that just was unpleasant through a negotiation and, you know, how either that client with your guidance or where you were involved, um, directly, you were able to turn that situation around.
1: Sure. Um, so very typical for us, uh, in terms of assignments, we got a call from a consulting firm, uh, under a lot of market pressure, giving up, uh, lots of upfront discounts, agreeing to caps, having lots of scope creep and lots of write-offs. And management had tried to fix this um, by having a pretty intensive top-down communications campaign that essentially boiled down to, please, please, please reduce write-offs. And it just didn't work. Um, and so we started by asking a lot of questions, trying to understand sort of where, where the write-offs were coming from. And the first thing we found is that the partners in the firm who were negotiating these fees didn't really think of these as negotiations. They said, well, you know, we just have discussions with our clients. Um, we then interviewed, you know, about a dozen of their clients, um, and they all thought those were negotiations – and you know the old saying about, you know, don't bring a knife to a gunfight. Well, if one party thinks it's a negotiation and the other one doesn't, um, things don't go well. Um, we also found that although they had a tight leash on the fee negotiation, um, they constantly permitted discounts because they didn't want to lose the business. They didn't really have a sense of, so what's too much of a discount and at what point are we willing to, to walk away Um, They also had no controls on on scope during execution. They just said, well, we're professionals. We have to exercise our judgment. We have to do what needs to be done. And the result was an average write-off, explicit write-off of about 17%, and a whole bunch of hidden write-offs, which is time that young uh, professionals were putting in but not recording on their time slips. Because they'd all been told, please, please, please reduce write-offs. And their managers were telling them, once you've worked eight hours on this client, stop recording your time. Um, And so we know that write-offs were probably north of 20%. And the thing about write-offs is this is money that you are not getting paid for work you've already done and costs you've already incurred. So any of that that you fix drops straight to the bottom line. It's not like adding you know, 20% to your top line. It's like adding 20% to your margin. So turnaround just required a few simple things, right? It required really institutionalizing the notion that you had to prepare for fee negotiations. And it wasn't that it was a tight leash on whether you could give a discount or not. It was that you had to be disciplined about preparation, but then they enabled a lot of creative problem solving. Second thing was they really put some controls in around scope management. And that meant that there was a change process internally to make sure that teams, specialists, partners in other offices who were being pulled into the matter really understood what the scope was and what the fee arrangement was. So they didn't just say, oh, here's a problem. Okay, well, 50 hours later, That was a really interesting problem, and let me tell you why, um, when it was meant to be a five-hour problem. Um, And then the other part of good scope management was regular client check-ins about the choices to be made. And I've already bored you with that, so I'll I'll get off my soapbox on that one. Um, The last piece was um, they also institutionalized having regular debriefs at the end of a matter, Um, because the typical thing that happens in many consulting firms is at the end of a matter, you have a big write-off and a partner writes a little note to the file that says, we're going to take a hit on this one, but we'll make it up on the next one. And of course, you never make it up on the next one. You just add to the write-offs on the next one. Um, so... They made these three simple changes, and the results in the first year were nothing short of spectacular. Millions flowed to the bottom line, and it was something that they were able to sustain for the next several years. Um, we stopped tracking it as a case study about four years in when the firm went through a series of mergers, and there was, there was no longer an apples-to-apples apples comparison. Um, but, uh, but what they added to the bottom line was just uh, really gratifying to see.
0: That is a great success story, and really like the idea of consistency in how they operated and accountability, because I think that's a big factor in making sure that these programs can continue. And the fact that you tracked it for four years I mean, that's and still saw you know, cumulative or uh, additional results going in once the practice was in play. I mean, that's got to be somewhat unique. I don't think you hear often that a program like that has been rolled out and then, you know, continues to benefit the organization. So I'm sure they felt quite uh, pleased. With the results. Vantage Partners has, and just for our listeners, I had the pleasure of working with Danny and Vantage Partners when I worked for a professional services firm. We hired Vantage Partners to come in and do some negotiation training for our associates globally. And the response was fantastic. I mean, people embrace the program. And even now, many years later, at least five, when I meet with individuals that went through that program, uh, we talk about it and how it has changed the Way we do business. And Danny, one of the things that we talk about when I meet with those folks is the BATNA. And that's one of the things we all remember and have retained. Is there another standard that Vantage Partner uses that you would like to describe, or would you like to tell our listeners about BATNA? Your choice.
1: Well, let let me tell you a little bit about BATNA in the professional services context. So BATNA means best alternative to a negotiated agreement, right? It's what we're going to do if we don't reach agreement. Um, And when you're in sales or business development and professional services, sometimes people say, well, BATNA doesn't make any sense to to me because I need to close this deal and the next one. It's not like I can just walk away from this one because this one isn't good and close the next one. Um, and I think it's helpful in professional services to think about bad in terms of opportunity cost. Um, and again, a visual helps a little bit, right? If you have your client portfolio and you could map it onto a two-by-two two matrix, right? And on one axis, it's how profitable they are. And on the other axis, it's how strong the relationship is. Um, It turns out that there's only two of those quadrants that are stable. And unfortunately, it's the low, low quadrant and the high, high quadrant. Because when you're talking about sort of high margin, low relationship clients, those clients are really vulnerable. The competition goes after them and you end up either losing the client or losing margin on it. Um, and if you're talking about the high relationship, low margin quadrant, that one's not stable either because over time, the partner, the relationship partner gets pressure to cut some corners, to spend less time with that client and the relationship suffers and it drops down to the low, low quadrant. So then you say, all right, so the only stable quadrants are the high, high. I wish I had more of those and the low, low. What do I do? It's like, well, you need to spend more time with your high-low clients and build the relationship so it's less vulnerable. You need to spend more time with your low-high clients and use that relationship to re-engineer the work, improve the value proposition, streamline, and improve your margins. And when I say that to a professional, they say, but where do I get the time for that? And that's where BATNA comes in. You need to divest yourself of some low, low clients so that you can repurpose your time, your teams, your efforts to those high, low and low, high clients and move them to the high, high quadrant. And so BATNA is not just what's the least I'll take for this from this client, but what can I do with my time if I'm not spending it on this client and what's that worth?
0: That's fantastic. The opportunity cost. And, you know, I can tell you in my career, that has been a big factor and something we talk about a lot. Although, as you know, the challenge in a lot of these firms is all clients are good clients, right? And that's not the case. There is an opportunity cost.
1: That's right. And and the culling process that I was just talking about to get rid of some of those low low clients, it's not something an individual partner can do on his or her own, right? Because an individual partner may not have a bunch of high, low or low-high opportunities to repurpose their time to. um, It's something that needs to be done by a practice. It's something that needs to be done by a firm. To be able to say to partners, shed some of those low, low client relationships, and we will make sure that your time is spent more productively.
0: There you go. So, Danny, I know we've talked about this uh, a bit during the interview, do you feel that negotiations are different in professional services versus other business-to-business negotiations, or is that you know, just the perception?
1: I think they're very different. I think one of the things that's different is that um, you actually have to be a trusted advisor to deliver value to the client. Right, If the client doesn't trust you, then the value of your advice is not worth as much to them. So I think it's really important. It's not just a question of our margin and good relationships. It's a question of our value proposition to not do something in the negotiation that puts at risk the very value that the client is going to get from our work because we're chipping away at trust, because we're showing them how we negotiate when something really matters to us. And they worry and say, how are you going to negotiate when something really matters to me? So I do think we have to treat these fee negotiations as more than just a bother or a prelude or some nuisance factor so we can get to the interesting work. We have to treat them as, a, as, a, as an example of what it's like to work with us.
0: Do you suggest role-playing fee negotiations? Is that a best practice or?
1: I think that before you go and sit down with a client, you should think about what you're going to say. You should try out what it's going to feel like to say that, um, it's actually kind of fun sometimes to not just role play at being yourself and getting one of your partners to be the client, but to, to change sides and to say to your client, so here are the arguments I was going to make. You make them to me and let me sit in the client's chair and see how I feel hearing that argument. Do I find that argument persuasive or do I think it's a bunch of BS? And you get some real insights from actually putting yourself in the client's seat, in the client's shoes, and listening to your own arguments.
0: That's a great suggestion. And what I'm sure when practice really highlights a number of just uncomfortable human feelings. Danny, I appreciate the time this morning, and I want to give you an opportunity to, you know, mention any other parts of either the work you do at Vantage Partners or things you experienced in your law career that you feel would be helpful to our listeners to to know or understand.
1: I mean, we've covered we've covered some good ground, uh, Nicole. I do think that um, there's a lot of things that people do intuitively very well. Um, and I think that there's real value in doing them a little bit more systematically and having a method and having a framework to make sure you're not forgetting something in, in the heat of the moment. Um, and a lot of what I do in my practice, I end up seeing things that are broken, right? People tend not to come to me when everything is just great. Um, so it's a little bit like a doctor, Um, you sort of see the pathology, you see the problems, um, but it's very energizing to, to help people then get it right in the first place to see from what I have seen damage other relationships or other, uh, situations where, where you just stop getting value and to help clients not step into those same holes or on those same landmines and, and get it right from the beginning.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you, Danny. I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you for being a guest on left foot.
1: My pleasure. And I look forward to listening to more of your podcasts.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of left foot. Be sure to visit www.leftfoot.net to access show notes, sign up for our weekday series and embrace what it means to lead
1: with the left foot.